The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. Well, if you want to follow along in your bulletin or your phone or your Bible, we're continuing in our story of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew for quite a while. We're to the point of his birth here in chapter 1. We love rescue stories, do we not? There's just something in us that we love hearing the story about Sully landing a plane when the birds have knocked out the engines. No engines, and he lands on the Hudson River and uh, everybody survives. Uh, we love even the, the make-believe, you know, where Iron Man sacrifices himself to save others, and we love seeing half the Marvel characters come back to life. We love that stuff, right? And uh, why did a billion people, a billion people tuned in to watch 33 miners that were stuck for 69 days down over 2,000 feet in the ground? And they had to come up with an incredible rescue plan in 2010 to rescue these miners. And I, I'll tell you, I can't even go into a, you know, an MRI machine for you know, five minutes hardly without lots of prayer. Uh, I can't imagine being underground uh, under 2,000 feet. And those guys were down there 69 days. And they, they were all rescued they all lived, and as an amazing story of technology, leadership, working together, prayers, they stuck together. And uh, we love these stories, but the greatest story of all is this story, because what if no human being could save you? I mean, what if all the best doctors, all the latest and greatest technology tools, all the world's money, Bill Gates Foundation, working all their men, all their money, the wisest of men, everybody with over 160 IQ, but nobody can save us from dying. That's pretty hopeless, and that's the plight that we're all in. And Jesus has come, and he went a little bit lower than, uh, you know, in a little bit harder and difficult spot than, than these Chilean miners. He went into the womb of Mary. Amazing. This is why Jesus had to come. He had to come to save us, the Bible says, from our sins. And so because this story is true, and we love it, Jesus, when he was here, he never wrote a book. Yet there's more books written about him and are still being written. Jesus never wrote a song, and we sing all our songs to him. And there's more songs sung to him than anybody else. Jesus never traveled more than 30 miles in his hometown, and yet his followers have traveled all over the world to tell everyone about this news. So let's be reminded of the rescue story of stories because we've been saved from the greatest plight, from the greatest punishment, saved by the greatest king, the king of kings and the lord of lords, who made the greatest stoop, the creator became a creature, the infinite became an infinite. He went to the cross, died and buried, descended to the dead, and he was raised on the third day. Here's the story. 
Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your, as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray again. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our hearts, open our ears, open our eyes, that we would behold who you are, Emmanuel, God with us. Help us to see Jesus and know why everything else pales in comparison. May we worship you afresh in Jesus' name. Amen. Joseph had big problems. You know, it's interesting, until the light broke in, that's all he could think about. What am I going to do? I love this woman. They had made vows. They were legally married. When you were betrothed, this isn't like engagement. They were married before witnesses, but the way the betrothal worked was it was another year before the marriage would be consummated. And so in this betrothal period, it's normal that they were considered married, but, but to be with child is not normal. And it's so not normal that Joseph's looking for a way out because he knows one thing's for sure. He's not the father. And if you put yourself in his shoes and you hear your wife tell you, no, really. No, no, really, I have an explanation. It's from the Holy Spirit. And then all you're thinking is what? I'm going to have to tell my family and all of my friends that they can all do math and they can all count and they can all see. And this isn't like our culture where over 50% of children today are born out of wedlock. In this day and age... This was a big problem. And Joseph wants out. He's going to divorce her because he's afraid. Because he's got to deal with one thing. He's going to have to answer everybody. And they're all going to say, we know. And he's going to say, no, no, I've got an explanation. Let me explain. It's from the Holy Spirit. How's that going to go over? This has never happened before. And so Joseph has this big problem. But God has a bigger solution. You see, when, when God breaks in with this news, this news is the news of news that's going to, basically all his problems are going to go away. It's like once God breaks in and we really get it, then all the things we thought were such a big deal. Like he probably wasn't even able to go to sleep and then he sleeps on it finally. And the angel of the Lord shows up and tells him, this is what's going to happen. God's plan trumped Joseph's problem. 
And this news was the most stupendous news that's been delivered in the history of the world. Mary's conception is supernatural. It's from the Holy Spirit. He shall be called Jesus, literally Yahweh saves, the Lord saves. He will save his people from their sins, and he is going to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14, hundreds and hundreds of years before, that the virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God's with us. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled trying to explain how does Isaiah 7.14 relate to Matthew 1? Because if you go back and you read Matthew 7, it's King Ahaz, who's not a very righteous king, and he's got two big impending, big armies coming down, and they're going to they're gonna snuff him out. And Judah's in big trouble, and the nation's in trouble. And God says, well, I'm, I'm going to send a sign. And, and the interesting thing is in the Hebrew, this word for virgin is ambiguous. It can mean young maiden, it can mean virgin, but the Hebrew is kind of vague. But the Greek word, which the Septuagint translates a couple hundred years before Jesus was born, uses the word parthenos. And that word is clearly means a virgin. And that's the, the text that Matthew writes from to make it clear to us that this fulfillment comes from the vir- a virgin. Now, we, we know this to even today. This was uh, Mike Nola helped me out with, as a reminder of this. In Athens, the Parthenon, okay, is, is dedic- is, uh, it's about Athena. It's the virgin goddess, the Parthenon. Very clear, the word for virgin. And so what's interesting is that when this was written, Isaiah, the human author, is giving this word, and he probably doesn't have any idea of the double fulfillment, that it initially would have this spiritual fulfillment, that there's going to be this one Hezekiah who's going to come, King Hezekiah, and before you even know what's up, before these armies are going to bring their, their doom upon you, you're going to see this sign, and the virgin's going to be with child, and, and, the, and the virgin there in the, in the Hebrew was this young maiden's going to have a child, and you're going to be, and God is going to be with you and deliver you. But the Holy Spirit has a double meaning. And this rock skipping across the pond has a big land the second time. And it's going to have not a spiritual fulfillment, but a literal fulfillment. That a virgin shall conceive and give birth to a child. And literally God would be with us. And so this is the great truth of this fulfilled prophecy. Well, John Murray was a great theologian in his collected writings. He says there's actually three miracles here. Three miracles. You have a supernatural begetting, you have a supernatural person, and you have a supernatural preservation. Let's consider those for a moment. So miracle number one, this is a supernatural begetting as Mary conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit without human intervention. She's a virgin, and she remained a virgin, the text makes clear, until she had given birth. And so what we see is the Holy Spirit who produced the world, now produced the Savior of the world, as Matthew Henry says. God used Mary's egg, but Joseph wasn't the seed. And so for us, some of this can be shocking. C.S. Lewis relates an incident that happened to him one Christmas. He was uh, teaching, and he was in his office at Oxford University in a skeptical fellow faculty member outside of his window in the college 
quad, they could hear the carolers singing Christmas carols. And some of the carols were about the virgin birth, and they could hear the words. And Lewis's friend smiled condescendingly and said, aren't you glad we know better than that? And Lewis responded, pardon me? What's your point? His friend said, well, you know, aren't you glad that we know that virgins don't have babies? And C.S. Lewis paused for a moment and said, don't you think they knew that too? That's precisely the point. Yeah, they knew. So we have a supernatural begetting. We have a supernatural person. It was not a mere baby that was supernaturally begotten. It was the eternal Son of God. As 1 Timothy 3.16 just says, Great is the mystery of godliness. God manifests in the flesh. God becomes incarnate in the flesh. C.S. Lewis says this is the miracle of miracles. It was a great thing for God to make the creature, but even greater for the creator to become a creature. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we're told the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus could later say to His disciples, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Supernatural person. And then there's a supernatural preservation. This is important. This refers to the preservation from defilement from the womb. You see, this may reside entirely in the supernatural begetting, for it may be that that our sinfulness, our depravity is conveyed or passed on through what we would say is natural generation. And it's possible that's the case. But we know that, that Jesus is free from the stain and the virus of Adam's sin, or in theological terms, he's free from the guilt and the pollution of Adam's sin. As, and he's preserved from this defilement in the womb of the Virgin Mary as Joseph is not involved. And so the idea here is that the Bible teaches what we would say we call original sin. And this original sin is passed on generationally so that when you are born, nobody has to teach you how to sin. Right? And David, in confessing his sin in Psalm 51 and his brokenness after his adultery, he's confessing his sin and writing this inspired word. He talks about how his defilement goes all the way back before birth, even to conception, that he has been defiled and sinful since his conception. If you're wondering why the virgin birth is important, it's because your salvation is at stake. Because you're sinful all the way from the moment of conception. And Job says, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. We're born into sin. And so... To categorize this in the theological terms for a minute, this is important to hear because if you get this, then the rescue is all the more precious. But the Westminster Confession of Faith has this chapter about original sin and then it goes into God's covenants. And it says this, listen for a moment. Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, this is a document that's summarizing the Bible And this is chapter 6, article 3. And it talks about how Adam and Eve, being the root of all mankind, the guilt of their sin was imputed. Okay, so now we are treated the same. 
And the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. There's only been one that wasn't ordinary generation. What would that be? Jesus. So all their posterity descending by ordinary generation are, have this imputed sin. And from this original corruption, we are now utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil and do proceed from that all actual transgressions. That's not good news. That's what G.A. Chesterton says. We, we all know we're survivors of a shipwreck long ago that went down. We know implicitly and innately that the world is not what it should be and that something's wrong. Well, it gets worse. The Westminster Confession goes on and says, Every sin, both original, Adam and Eve, and actual, our sins, being a transgression of the righteous law of God and contrary thereunto, does in its own nature bring guilt upon the sinner, whereby he's bound over to the wrath of God and the curse of the law and so made subject to death with all miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. That's not good. It means we're doomed in and of ourselves. We need somebody outside of us to rescue us. So chapter 7, right after that, begins with this. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, by which he's been pleased to express by way of covenant. Translation, God had to come down. He had to come and save us, because we could never save ourselves. And so the reason why the virgin birth is so important, if you look in your bulletin, and you look at the reflection quotes, there's two quotes there from the Heidelberg Catechism, and I usually quote these every year because I, I love Heidelberg Catechism question 36, question and answer. But the first one is, what do you confess when you say he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? Answer, the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit, Thus also he's the true seed of David, and like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. What benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? He is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sin in which I was conceived and born. Your holiness and your righteousness that gets imputed to you, not from the first man, Adam, who imputed death, now the second Adam, Jesus, comes along, and he is not defiled from conception. And that's my holiness, my righteousness. By one man's obedience, the many are made righteous. And that obedience goes all the way back that he can't be contaminated with the guilt and pollution of Adam's sin, or otherwise we couldn't be saved. So Jesus has a perfect righteousness to give us as a gift because we could never do it. And so we are told here, as, as God comes down and he comes into time, space, and history, and this angel delivers this message to Joseph that she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus 
You see, you don't get to name this child. God names him because he will save his people. Here's the rescue. Does it say that he'll save us from our sorrows? Does it say he's going to save us from our loneliness, our depression, our anxiety, our poverty, our empty life, our unfulfilled life, our problems, our psychological issues, our sociological issues, our environmental issues, my family issues, drama from the past, lack of hope in the future, political systems, worries, fears, death? Does it say any of that? He came for something bigger. Those are all problems, but he came to save us from our sin. We've been reading with the elders this book by Justin Early. It's called The Common Good. And Ben and I have been struck by this part where he talks about keystone habits. He talks about these different disciplines and how a keystone habit is a habit that functionally triggers all the rest of the habits to fall into place. What is the keystone habit? And for, for one of those things that Justin Early is talking about, one of those is scripture before phone in the morning as a keystone habit. If I start the day with scripture before phone, that's a keystone habit that's going to trigger the rest of the day. Or starting in prayer on your knees. Or turning my phone off for an hour when I get home. He talks about keystone habits. Which one for you is the one that will cause the other discipline so that I will start to lean towards God rather than towards all the things that buzz and get all of our attention? So you have this idea of a keystone habit, I would also say, if you took the concept and said, well, what is the keystone truth, the keystone doctrine, is that Jesus came to save me from my sins. And in tackling the key thing, the big thing, then he functionally triggers all the rest to fall into place. So that when God comes back again, he doesn't say he's coming to save us from our sin, but all the residue and the effects of sin. There'll be no more crying. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more tears because the keystone has triggered all the rest and they will be eradicated no more. Because he came for something bigger to take out the biggest problem, which was to save us from our sins. That's what he came to do. And so now we see that Jesus is now called Emmanuel, which means God not against us, God without us, not God despite us, not God regardless of us, not God over us, not God with them or God with me, but God with us. How can that be? God with us, like us in every way. We are told that Jesus grew up. He grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. He learned things as a man. He's fully man. But as God, he taught with one who has authority and not as the, not as the scribes or the teachers of the law. And the people marveled at his teaching. Jesus was a man like us and he got hungry. And yet he's God and could say, I'm the bread of life. And he could take a multitude and feed them with five fish and two loaves because he's fully man, but he's fully God. Jesus is a man and he got tired. And when he was tired, he needed sleep. And he got into the boat and they took him as he was because he was exhausted and he fell asleep. Yet he's God and he can walk on water. And he's God who can stand up in the middle of that storm when they're perishing and say, be still and the winds and the waves obeyed him because he's God. He's God with us. 
Jesus got thirsty because he's a man. And when he got to the woman in Samaria needing a drink of water, he asked her for a drink of water because he was thirsty. Yet he promises to give her the water of life, which, which she will never be thirsty again because he's God with us. He's Emmanuel. You see, Jesus said the Son of Man has no place to lay his head because he's a man. And he didn't have a home. Yet Ephesians tells us that all things are under his feet and he's the head over all things. He's God with us. Jesus, as a man, wasn't able to carry his cross and he stumbled and fell to his knees. And yet as God, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's God. He's God with us. As a man, Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He was saddened by death. And yet as God, he said, Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth. He's God with us. Jesus as a man is David's son or the son of David. Yet as God, he's David's Lord. And Jesus asked the final question to the Pharisees. He said, I've got a question for you. How can the Messiah be David's son and also David's Lord? And after that, they asked him no more questions because the only answer to that is he is Emmanuel, God with us. He's fully man, yet fully God. He suffered and bled as a man, but three days later, he was raised from the dead because he's God. He said, I have the power to lay down my life and to take it up again. Jesus' humility is not a subtraction of deity. It's an addition of humanity. He became what he was not without ceasing to be what he already was. He's God who takes on flesh. He's God manifest in the flesh. He's the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. He's God with us. And the prophecies of the Bible talk about this. Jesus, in Psalm 22, is scorned by mankind and despised by the people. He says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint and my heart's like wax and it's melted within my breast and my strength is dried up like a pot's herd and my tongue sticks to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my feet and my hands and I can count on my bones and they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. He's a man. And yet, he's God. Later in the, in the same psalm, it says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. He's God with us. The prophet Daniel says the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Daniel 9.26. And yet Daniel 7 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. He's God with us. The prophet Isaiah says about Jesus that he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by, by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was a man. And yet this prophecy begins with, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. He's a man. He bore our sorrows, carried our griefs. We considered him stricken by God, smitten 
by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we're healed. He's a man. And yet as God, we are told in the same prophecy that when his soul makes an offering, an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Resurrection. He's God. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. He is God with us. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. He's God with us. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and the peace, there'll be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He is God with us. Do you see God came down? God must save his people from their sins as man is unable to do this. Never have, never will. Christians are not good people striving to be better so that God will be somehow be appeased by their good works. That's not a gospel of good news, and it doesn't bring glory to God, and it doesn't humble man. But here is good news. God made a promise. The promise all the way back in Leviticus 26, when God said, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. And the way for him to, to be his people is he has to save his people from their sins. Is God with you this morning? Is God with you? Is he your savior? Has he saved you from your sins? Have you received the gift of salvation? Have you opened up your life, your heart? We sing the Christmas carol, let every heart prepare him room. He's the king. He's God with us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And yet you came down, offered your blood, made a new covenant that you would be our God and that we would be your people. And that covenant was made in blood. And how we thank you that we are saved by the precious blood of Jesus. We thank you now for the privilege to come to the table, to be reminded of the resurrection, to be reminded of glory and what is to come, to have a foretaste of what is in the future for us. Fill us with hope and joy. In Jesus' name, amen.